your Bible with you or some device, you'll be looking at the Scriptures with us. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're, we're nearing the end of our time in First and Second Samuel, just a few chapters left that we'll finish um, here this summer. Um, just to, to set a little bit of the scene as to where we are right now, um, because of David's sin, um, specifically regarding Bathsheba, um, this pretty horrible set of circumstances has, has followed over the last several chapters. And probably with David, um, as you think of him, um, probably the, the, the terms or the phrases that would come, if you're thinking of David, um, for, for most folks in church, would be that he was a shepherd, he was a king, you think of Goliath, and you probably think of Bathsheba. And yet there is really a, a lot of tragedy that follows that scene with Bathsheba, um, culminating um, in the, the assault of a daughter, in the, the murder of a son by another son, the betrayal of a son, Absalom, who then leads a coup against David, who has now taken the king, um, the, the throne, and has gone to war with David. And so last week, what we saw was the culmination of that, as David and his army is able to defeat Absalom and his army, and Joab makes sure that Absalom, the one who's attempted to take the throne, is killed, even though David had asked for mercy for his son. And so we get to this point now where the news has um, arrived. David knows that, hey, you know, the, the coup has been put down, but your son is dead. And he is weeping, and he is mourning, and he is broken. And as the army returns to the city, um, they don't come in as a, as a conquering um, army, exuberant. They see the, the sadness in their king, and they come in as ones with shame, ones who have lost. And so Joab comes in and speaks firmly, and maybe even harshly, with the king saying, you think you've had trouble? You haven't seen anything yet. If you don't go out there, you're going to lose everybody. You've got to go out there, because it looks like you hate those who are for you and love those who hate you, that you would rather us be dead and Absalom be alive. And so David is able to pull himself together. He goes out and he addresses the army and the military he thanks them, he celebrates um, at least somewhat with them, and kind of cools the, the potential divide. And that's where we laid off last week. So we're going to pick up this week in, in chapter 19, verse 9. Um, the people are returning to their cities, headed back, and so let's, let's pick up. And all the peoples were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all of Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh, why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you're not the commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. 
so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. We're going to stop there for just a moment. So what we have really is kind of national disarray, right? As, you, as we spent time getting to David on the throne, we saw that the, the kingdom of Israel was really always a little bit in a state of, of turmoil with Saul as a leader, right? Going like, who, who are we following? Things aren't great. And we're, we're back there momentarily, right? Where they're going, hey, listen, some of us have anointed Absalom. It's not who God anointed. God anointed David. We've anointed Absalom, but Absalom's dead. David has won some victories for us, but he's in exile. And you can just imagine, like, just because Absalom has been defeated, it doesn't make all the tension go away. It doesn't make all the emotions go away. It doesn't make it all of a sudden, oh, we're, we're back to being a united people. And so there's conversation and there's turmoil amongst the tribes and leaders going, okay, is David our king? Will he come back? Should he come back? Do we want him to come back? And this conversation is going, and for the most part, most people want him back as king. And it's interesting that he says, um, listen, I'm going to take the, the, the general of the army that we defeated, and I'm going to make him the commander of my army in place of Joab. And so what's going on here is he's really trying to mend some bridges, right? He's trying to make, he's, he's playing the political game of like, listen, I'll take your general, I'll put him over our army, trying to bring things back, unify, I trust you, we're one people again. But he's also punishing Joab. Because Joab completely disregarded his order to, to show grace and mercy to his son. And so even though Joab may have been expedient and right, and the reason that he had Absalom killed was he said, listen, we can't have the one who started the coup, who is also your son, back in the, like in the, in the, I'm on, back in, like in, at, at, at the foot of the throne, right? Like we can't have him back there. And so he has him killed, right? But David is like, okay, Joab, if you think you're going to do what's expedient and what's best for the nation, I can do that too. So it would be expedient and best for the nation if we unify, and so their general is now the general in your place. Right? Like they still see this political maneuvering taking place here. So let's pick up in verse 16. And Shema, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shema, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not shame I be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? that you should this day be an, as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know, 
For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shema, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now if you remember back in chapter 16, Shema is the one, his, as they're walking out, right? David is on his way out. The coup has started. Him and his followers are exiting the city, right? It, it's, a, it's a tearful, hard, difficult scene. And Shema is opposite the ravine, throwing rocks and cursing David, saying, you deserve this. Like this is because of how you treated Saul. And he's not right in that regard, right? He says God is punishing you because of that. And that's not what God is doing. And, and Abishai, one of David's right-hand men, says, hey, can I go take his head? Like, I want to remove his head for you. Because he is cursing God's anointed. How dare he? And David looks at, at, at Abishai and he says, listen, I don't want you to kill him. He said, because even though what he's saying isn't accurate, I am, I'm not innocent. I got blood guilt is on my hands. I am guilty. And so he lets him live. And so now here we have this scene where David is now the conqueror coming back to Jerusalem and Shema, right, goes, I'm in trouble. Right? Like, I cursed and threw rocks at the king on his way out of the city. He's coming back. I'm probably going to die. And so he gathers up a thousand Benjamites from his tribe and he goes out, he hears the king's coming and he wants to be the first one to meet him. Now listen, we can question motive, right? Is this, is this a political move or is this true remorse? Because on the one hand, he brings a thousand people to say, like, you're going to see me prostrate myself before the king. You're going to see me humble myself and apologize and own my sin. On the other hand, when you bring a thousand people, right, he's kind of asking David, do you really want to have another fight? If you don't and you try to kill me, they're for me. Right? There's, there's just posturing going about all across. And so he comes and he apologizes. He owns his portion of it and he asks for grace, for asks for the king not to take it to heart. Right? Which it sounds like something your child would say to you. Right? Hey, remember those horrible things I said to my sibling or to you? Hey, don't take it to heart. Just kidding. Right? No big deal. You're like, somebody's about to die, right? And so Abishai is back, the, the Lord's or David's right hand man, and he's like, he he broke the Torah, right? Exodus twenty two says you don't curse the Lord's ruler. Let me kill him, right? Like he's he's just kind of a one one trick pony here. He's like, I want that man to be dead because of what he's done to you. And somewhat shockingly, David says no. Like he's setting the tone for coming back in. He's like, no more blood needs to be shed. And he offers grace that is utterly not deserved to Shema. And says, listen, I give you my oath, you won't die. You can probably imagine the shock of all those watching this, right? That David was in his right as king to just kind of be done with this. Like he's putting down all those who were his adversaries, and yet now here he is going to let this one who very publicly like, tried to humiliate and mock him live. All right, so we're going we're gonna to continue here. We'll come back to that. Verse 24. And Mahibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. 
from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Ahibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mehibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safe. Right, so here's, here's what's going on. In chapter 9, right, remember, Mehibosheth is the son of Jonathan, um, David's dear friend. He is the grandson of Saul. And so when David is taking over, right, and they're expecting him to wipe out any potential heirs of Saul's lineage, right, and he is, he's lame, he's crippled due to an accident um, when Jonathan was killed and they were fleeing. And this crippled, dependent one comes before King David and David says, you're going to sit at my table. And he shows him mercy and he shows him grace. He shows him compassion. He says, all the days of your life, you're here. And he gives him land, servants, and money. And he provides for him like a son. Just a beautiful picture of, of the love that God has for us, right? The crippled who come before him spiritually. That he allows us to sit at the table when he could have told us to depart from his sight. But in chapter 16, his servant, Ziba, right, rides out with a bunch of supplies for David and says, Mehibosheth has decided, hey, he's going to go and he's going to get the throne today because Absalom's going to give it to him as a descendant of Saul. And, and so now... David was heartbroken that Mehibosheth has not come with him, that he feels like he's been betrayed. And yet now, as he's coming back into the city, here comes Mehibosheth, filthy, feet uncared for, beard not taken care of, filthy, and says, Ziba lied. He betrayed me. I told him to, to saddle a donkey for me so I could come with you because I'm lame, I can't walk, I needed it. And he takes it himself, grabs some supplies, and comes and slanders me and tells you this false thing about me. So now David here has, a, once again, who's telling the truth? Right? Like it, by, by physical look, it would look like Mehibosheth is telling the truth. But, but Ziba, like, who could have died bringing supplies to him, like took a personal risk to deliver goods and, and, and donkeys and food to them when they were headed back out into the wilderness. And so David does um, something kind of strange, and he just says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to divide what I had given to Ziba between the two of you. Basically what he's saying is one of you is telling the truth, one of you isn't. But I'm not going to punish either one of you. So one of you is getting... Half of what, right, half of what you deserve. The other one's getting more than you deserve, right? It's this interesting, just like almost. I don't have time for an inquiry here. I'm just going to assume the best about both of you. That I really appreciated the food that came when I needed it, and I appreciate your loyalty here. 
I don't know that I want to dig deep and to see who's, who's lying to me. And so he rewards both of them, and we begin to move forward. Look at now at verse 31. We're going to have a conversation with one more individual. Now Barzeli, the Gileadite, had come down from Rajilam, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzeli was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzili, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzili said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what isn't? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then shall your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here's your servant, Timham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Timham shall go with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and, he, and the king kissed Barzeli and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. At the end of chapter 17, as, as David and his followers are out in the wilderness um, trying to, to set up and be prepared for the, the attack that Absalom is going to bring, there were three men mentioned who brought um, supplies to care for them. They just out of generosity um, and out of an abundance cared for David and his followers. Barzeli is one of them. And so he meets David. There's this like moment right of celebration as, as he has supported the Lord's anointed. And we see a man who is wealthy, who has benefited the king, but he didn't do it for reward. Right? He was generous because he was supporting what the Lord had done, that the Lord had sent David and set him as king and anointed him, and he is caring for this man. And so David is looking to repay that generosity. He says, listen, you come with me. Come back to Jerusalem. Live out your days, in the, and you can just stay right with me in my courts. And Barzillai's like, man, I'm old. That, that doesn't sound as great as it would have once. Like, I want to go home. I want to go to my people. Um, I, want to, I want to die in my city near my ancestors. Um, but if you, and so we don't know for sure if Kim Ham is a son or a grandson, most likely a relative that he, he sends in his place to kind of take the honor that David wants to bestow on him. And we just have this scene as they go a little ways over the river, they embrace, David honors and kisses him and then sends him back, right? In gratitude for what he's done. And so we have this scene of, of one who we, we believe to be loyal, who then seemed to be a traitor. We have the one who was just good to David all along. We have the one that has cursed David and now received grace. And really, we are seeing, as he's leaving exile, a triumphal entry back into the city. It's a reversal of, of the fortune, right? That he is seeing the same people, and things are going to David's benefit now. 
So really the question I want us to linger with um, as we finish out this morning is this, is how do we respond to Jesus? Right? Like how do we respond to the grace offered? Because right, David is offering grace to these individuals, each one as he is headed back to Jerusalem. How do we respond to the grace that's been offered to us? To set the tone for this a little bit, this is Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight. And Peter writes and says, "Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What, what Peter is saying, and what, how I want us to frame this conversation this morning is this, is the mere fact that you're breathing right now is grace from God. Right? Like that we have been rebels to the King. And the fact that the Lord has been patient to us, would we not overlook that? Would we not presume upon that? The Lord is being gracious. Right? On this side of heaven, as we are breathing, the Lord is saying, hear me, respond to me, see me, trust me, receive the kindness and the mercy and the grace that is offered. Because I will return. And there will be a day where the offer is no more. Like where the time will have passed that you can respond to this. And so would we honestly ask, how, how are we responding to this? That Jesus in His perfect life, in His faithful substitutionary death, and in, in His resurrection, right? Like He has shown us grace upon grace and mercy. Saying, I have paved a way back to the Father. Back to the place where you, what you were created for and the place where you belong. And I'm coming back. And some will, will look and say, well, listen, it's been a long time. He hasn't come back yet. He's not coming back. That was a joke. Right? That's not real. Jesus isn't who He said. He's like, listen, don't presume upon my grace. Don't presume upon my mercy and my patience. It is because of love wanting all to come to repentance, to faith, to knowing Me. David was in exile. And for a period, it seemed like it was a little bit unsure as to whether he would be back on the throne in Jerusalem. Would he still be king? And yet there were those who left the city with him, those who supported him when he was the weaker one. There was those who supported him when it looked like there was no way he was going to win. Right? In Jesus' life, it would have been fair to ask the question, he's the king? Dude has nowhere to lay his head. He's got no army. He's got no nation. He's got no throne. Like, Rome killed him. But he defeated sin, Satan, and death. He proved that he was who he said he was when he walked out of the grave. And he is alive today. And there will be a day where he will split the sky and step back into human history for his people. And every knee will recognize and bow before the king. And some will do it going, there's our king, right? They're Mahibosheth going, I don't need anything. You came back safe. You're my everything. And others will prostrate themselves like Shema, right? Going, we recognize 
that we're going to die. That we have made a serious mistake. And the king is very likely opposed to us. Right? Like that, that would we respond while we have time to respond to the grace that the Lord has offered? What do we say to it? Because there are some, right, and it seems a growing number in the world or in our culture, who it's just outright rejection. Right? Like they're glad to join forces with Shema and just curse God. With their, with their language, with their, with their actions, with their decisions. They're just saying, God, want, maybe you're not there. If you are, we reject you fully. We want nothing to do with you. Right? They're, they're throwing the dirt clods. They're cursing. They're saying, we want nothing to do with you. But as offensive as that can feel, and that, and that is, there's a second type of rejection. There's a rejection that goes, I'm just going to use God for my, my own ends and means. And so I'm going to outwardly accept Him, and inwardly I'm rejecting His Lordship in my life. So if I can gain something from Him right, by, by appearing to be moral or by, by looking um, to be good or by even affirming some things about Him, that I'm really going to be the King of my life, the Lord of my life, and I'm going to use God as if we could for a means of my own ends, for my own selfish gain and justification and promotion. Right? It's not just those who would hurl rocks and curse outwardly. There are those who would curse inwardly and appear to be on the Lord's side. Right? Like so Shema so far has played both of those roles. He's been the outward cursor. And now he's prostrate where you're going, for real? Like, do you, are you really, you really want David? Right, it's unclear. Right, Mahibosheth even falls into this a little bit of like, do, do we know where you stand? Like, were you really loyal? Were you not? Ziba, right? Were you, like, or was that self-promotion? Did you run out there and give to the king what he needed in hopes to gain something for yourself politically, believing that the king would be able to defeat Absalom. Right? Like it's it's unclear as to whether you're really following and trusting the king or not. And that we can play this game even in the church. And yet would we be reminded that even for those today who would outwardly curse God, that there is grace and mercy available. That they don't have to stay there. For you who would say, like, I look like I follow Him, but I curse Him inwardly, there is grace and mercy available. And it is as offensive as it was to Abishai. Right? Like, there's a part of us when Abishai's like, David, can I go take his head? That your heart soars and you're like, yes, please. Like, you are insulting the king. Like, we want to, like, celebrate Abishai and say, go get him. Right? You have offended the Lord's anointed. And yet, that grace that is offered, even if it's undeserved, it's just offensive. The church, would we realize that we are recipients of that grace? If you're offended by Shema's attitude towards the king, that's who we are before God. As rebels and enemies apart from Jesus, that we were the ones saying, you're not my king. Like, I am. Or someone else is, but God, you're not. 
until the grace and mercy of God was poured over us and we trusted Jesus for our salvation. That He was sufficient to make us right with the Father. Listen, we deserve death because we have rebelled against the King. And we are receiving grace right now that we're not dead so that we can receive the ultimate gift of salvation of being called a son or a daughter of the King. So maybe for you, maybe it's not outright cursing or rejection. Maybe it's not even inward kind of playing the game but really being opposed to the King. For others, it's just indifference. I'm just not making a choice, right? Like it's, I'm just indifferent to the whole thing. But we know that not choosing is choosing. That in not choosing to give affection to the king, you're choosing to reject the king, even if you're not angry about it. Right? It's why God has built things like awe into the world. Right? Like that there are certain, whether it's the ocean or the Grand Canyon. Or a starry sky. Like there's something that in you just stirs awe, and you're like, oh, "This is big. This is bigger than me. I'm quite small." The question of purpose in our lives, the question of worship in our lives, the question of meaning and of death. Right? Like there's these things built in for us to go. You can't be indifferent. You have to make a decision. Are you going to trust God that He's the one who's doing this, or am I going to trust in something else? Indifference is choosing by not choosing. Church, it's why we are to be on mission, right? That we would let people know, like, their indifference is a decision. That we want people to know, like, the answer to the question of awe is there's one who is awesome, right? The question of purpose is to know and to make known the glories of God. The question, is there meaning in life? There is. Is there, is there life after death? There is. Is there purpose? Is there meaning? There is, and it's found in the person and the work of Jesus, sent by the Father and sealed by the Spirit for His glory and for our good. And so we can be outright cursing and rejecting. We can be indifferent. Or like Mahibosheth, we can show loyalty and affection and obedience. Listen to what he says in verse 30. And Mahibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, meaning Ziba, since my lord the king has come home safely. He's going, It wasn't mine to begin with. It's undeserved. You've given me grace and mercy that I can't begin to fathom. Do what you will. I trust you. I, it, would this be our response in our mouth and in our heart to the king, Jesus? Do what you want. You've given me more than I deserve. You've given me everything I need for life and godliness. You've made me right with the Father. You've given me hope and peace and purpose and salvation and joy and, and joys eternal and overflowing that I won't get to the bottom of do what you want. It's yours and you have given to me freely. Like, praise be to you, Jesus. I did that response of trust and affection and of loyalty. So, you can be near the king and miss it. Absalom was the son of the king and missed it. Right? A coup to try to overthrow him. Shema is near the king and misses it. We find that to be true in 2 Kings chapter 2 when David tells Solomon, hey, about Shema, take care of it. 
right? I gave him my word. You didn't give him your word. And Shema is executed. Like David didn't believe what took place there. He gave grace that was undeserved, but Shema continued to not. He continued to show that he wasn't loyal. There's additional stories if you want to continue in 1 Kings and look. We think about Judas. Close to the king and misses it. Would we not assume proximity means that we have given loyalty and trust and affection to Jesus? That knowing him or knowing things about him or, or being in the vicinity is sufficient? It's, have we given him ourselves? Do we trust him? Have we received his grace? And are we loyal and affectionate and obedient to him? Because for those who are near it and miss it, no different than outright rejection. You will be judged. Like, David wasn't able to discern the hearts, for sure, of Mahibosheth and Ziba. Jesus will. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He knows our hearts. And then this is Romans 2, 16. On that day, meaning judgment, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It will not be secret. Your false allegiance will be known. Right? Your true allegiance will be revealed. Like these things will come to fruition. And so you can be near the king and miss it. But God will judge accordingly. Whether you have chosen to receive the grace offered, or you've rejected it. And so maybe here's, where we'll, here's what, what, what we can do to end this morning. I think it's helpful for us to just every once in a while kind of take an assessment, right? And so several times a year, I'll try to just sit down for a moment and kind of think through, man, how am I doing as a dad? How am I doing as a husband? Right? And I'll just kind of run through some, some lists of, you know, am I present? Am I available? Am I getting time with them? How, you know, am I yelling a lot? I mean, just, just thinking through all the, the roles as a husband and as a dad. You know what? I don't ever walk away from self-assessments going, I'm crushing it, right? Like, that's not, like, and, and listen, that doesn't mean that we, we're self-deprecating all the time of like, I, I never do anything good. But you don't ever typically honestly assess yourself and go, there's nothing I could improve on. There's nothing more I could do. You're always aware that, yeah, seasons are changing and, and kids need something different and, and what, like, how do we continue to pursue, right? Would we trust the Spirit this morning if we just say, Spirit, assess our hearts like, is my affection for Jesus? Would you open my eyes to see Him clearly? Like, do I love Him? Do I want Him? Is my affection poured out for Him? Am I hearing from Him? Or am I going on past momentum? Am I obeying Him? Am I intentionally pursuing Him? Or am I just kind of drifting wherever things go? Right? Like, are we asking these questions like, Spirit, open my eyes to see Jesus clearly. And if you've never received the grace of God, that you would receive it and taste and see that the kindness of the Lord is good and beneficial this morning. If you have forgotten that, that you would be reminded of it and drink again deeply of it.
that if you have much to confess, that you would confess it knowing that God's grace far outruns your sin. Right? Like that it's not to shame you. It's for you to come in as a son or as a daughter, to be known and loved, to receive what you do not deserve, and to get it freely anyway, because of the life and death and resurrection. And so I want to I leave us with that, that, that this morning as we enter a time of worship through song, or this afternoon as we leave, or even this week, like, God, give me eyes to see where is my affection right now? Like, I don't want to answer that flippantly or quickly. Show me. Is it for you? Or am I currently indifferent? Or am I, quite frankly, a cursor of it right now? God, help me see and to know and to trust. Let's pray. Father, would we trust that Your Word and Your Spirit are revealers? Would we not look to justify ourselves this morning? God, but instead would we hear um, your, Your gracious and kind reminders of mercy to us? God, would we trust that You will reveal areas in our life that need repentance and confession? That You'll reveal areas of our life where our affection has grown too strong for a gift rather than the giver of the gift. God, that you will work and move. God, that you will loosen our grip from things that are going to take us from you to distract you, to distract us from you. God, that you will give us eyes as you as our King. And that we would long to see others come to know you and trust you as King. Lord, would you work and would you move and would we give space for those things to happen? In Jesus' name.